If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 1066 was a seismic year for England, with William of Normandy's accession to the throne after his victory at the Battle of Hastings. We tend to think of this as the end of an era, but one aspect of the Norman conquest that we don't hear much about is what happened to the children whose lives were upended by this momentous change of circumstances. It's something that Eleanor Parker looks at in her new book, Conquered, The Last Children of Anglo-Saxon England. Dave Musgrove spoke to her and began by asking about the idea behind her book. Today I am joined by Eleanor Parker, who is lecturer in medieval English literature at Oxford University, and uh, she's written an excellent book which is called Conquered, the Last Children of Anglo-Saxon England. And the uh, it's got a brilliant cover. The cover image is, uh, is one... A, a, a picture from the biotapestry, um, with perhaps the only scene that shows a child in that famous embroidery, where we see a boy who's presumably English being led away by a woman, one imagines uh, who might be his mother, from a building that seems to be being burnt by Norman troops in the run-up to the Battle of Hastings. So um, that kind of uh, gives us a little sense about what we're talking about here. Um, 
I'm sure most of the listeners will know the story of 1066. Uh, Edward the Confessor dies. Uh, Harold Godwinson takes the throne. William Conqueror invades and dispossesses him. And thus we have Norman England. But Eleanor, you found sort of a new way to explore the story and the events before and after by looking at the stories of the children um, of English families who were upended by this conquest. So, so what's the idea here? What are you trying to do? Well, I think, I mean, we often think about the Norman Conquest, kind of as you were saying there, as, you know, it's a huge event in the history of England. And it's often to us, it seems like the end of one thing, Anglo-Saxon England, and then the beginning of something totally new. Um, But of course, if you were living through it, you didn't necessarily feel like that. You didn't know that's what it was going to be. So I was really interested in what it was like for kind of younger people, children, teenagers who were kind of experiencing all of that and being affected by it. But they were too young to, to sort of do much about it or to to take a very active part in um, in the events of 1066. And then, of course, they had to live there as they were growing up. They had to live their adult lives in the aftermath of all of that. So I kind of wanted to see what that was like for them, uh, what kind of choices they had. And then also really how the, the sort of the, the stories of their lives were told and remembered by by their descendants and by later generations. Yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. We have the benefit of hindsight. We know what's going to happen uh, after 1066, but uh, but these people didn't, did they? And it's it's very interesting to consider uh, their actions in that light. Um, could you introduce us to some of the of the main characters uh, in your book? Um, you talk particularly about um, sort of the relatives and family of, of the two kings whose reigns ended in 1066, Edward and Harold. But there are there are some other people you talk about as well. So just could you very top line sort of sketch out the people you're interested in? Yeah, so as you say, there's um, kind of the surviving members of the different sort of royal or royal-ish families, leading families of Anglo-Saxon England. So you've got, for instance, Edgar Atheling um, and his sisters, um, descendants of the Anglo-Saxon royal line. Um, in one sense, Edgar Atheling was a kind of, it, you know, maybe the best candidate for the, the throne in 1066 from an ancestral point of view, but he was still a teenager. He never really you know, managed to substantiate that claim. Then you've got um, the, the members of um, Harold Godwinson's family, so Harold left um, a number of children. His brothers, also killed in 1066, um, had left surviving children too. So I was interested in what happened to them. Um, and then you've got like Waltheof, the son of the Earl of Northumbria, um, who also, um, in the aftermath of the conquest, first of all took part in rebellions against the Normans and then tried to accommodate with them and then rebelled against them again. And, you know, so you get stories like that. But also some people from um, kind of less sort of um, aristocratic or less important families, um, like I was, uh, one chapter looks at the English historian um, Edmer of Canterbury um, and other monks of Christchurch Canterbury um, and how they experienced the period after the Norman conquest because for them too it was a time of real change and upheaval to investigate these people the lives of, of the of the children obviously they go on to become adults um and and sometimes their uh, their, their voices come through in the sources as adults but do you have to um approach this subject in a different way do you have to reach out to different sources to to, to investigate these uh, these lives well, one of the things that really interested me about this subject is how kind of patchy the sources are for looking at the lives of this generation. So some of their stories are quite kind of um, substantially told. So like Margaret, Edgar Atheling's sister, she became a saint. Um, and so there are kind of extensive accounts of her life, for instance. Or Edmund of Canterbury, he wrote about his own memories of the post-conquest period. So you've got some good sources there. But the children, for instance, of the Godwinson family, are they get very, very scanty mentions, especially in English sources. So we have to look, in that case, at um, uh, sources from Scandinavia to kind of fill in the gaps there. So there are lots of places where there are silences in the sources 
sources and gaps in the sources as if maybe there was a kind of um, a reluctance to write about what happened to these children. Um, and some people maybe didn't want their stories told or weren't sure how to tell these stories in a country which was under Norman rule and changing so rapidly um, in the late 11th and 12th century. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come back to that, um, the, the, the source of the, the non-English sources that you um, you look at, because I, f- I found that very interesting. Um, it, it, is, it is a European story that you tell in this book in, in many respects, isn't it? Which is one of the um, uh, sort of fascinating things. We t- when we think about the Norman Conquest and the Battle of Hastings and what followed, quite often we tend to see it in a very sort of narrow English history kind of view and, and forget that obviously things are happening uh, not in a vacuum and stuff's going on around it. Um, do you think that's a, a bit of an oversight in terms of our, our historical understanding that we, we do take a very laser view on on what happens in 1066 like that i mean obviously it's you know it did have huge consequences for england but it had because it kind of the consequences also sort of radiated out um not just through england but like the rest of britain and and ireland too um so scotland and ireland are a part of this story it affected england's relationship with other parts of europe obviously normandy but also kind of the other um, parts of europe where the normans were active um and scandinavia which was a very important part of English history in the the years, but the, the centuries before the conquest, and then kind of increasingly, um, England and Scandinavia sort of start to draw apart as England falls into the Norman orbit. So all of that is part of the story too. So the way I read it, um, and and you can correct me if you think, if you think I'm wrong, it's it's kind of a story about the sins of the fathers in many respects, isn't it? As as, as these yeah. children t- try to escape the the tainted legacy of of what their of what their fathers have done. Is is that a fair assessment of what you've been trying to do? Uh, that's a nice way of thinking about it. I definitely think it's about inheritance in kind of literal sense, in a tangible sense, and of course, uh, you know, an intangible sense as well. Because one of the reasons that this generation of children, or some of them at least, continue to be important in the post-conquest England is that they sort of carry with them some lines of inheritance from the pre-conquest period, which the Normans were interested in. So especially, say, the family of, of Margaret of Scotland, um, she's the survive, you know, the kind of um, the channel through which an- <laughs> pre-conquest royal ancestry manages to kind of come back into the the Norman dynasty through the marriage of her daughter to um, Henry I. So there's this sense in which those kinds of lines of inheritance are are kind of valuable and have a sort of political function. But then also, especially I think for the the sons of these, yeah, these fathers, like Harold Gobinson's sons, there's a question of, well, what kind of inheritance have these great families left to their children? Can they claim any of that tangible or intangible heritage? Or do they just kind of have to start afresh and, and kind of create everything new for themselves? But if it is about the sins of the fathers, then um, one of the really interesting bits in your book is is the the place of the mothers and, and the women in this story. Because as, as you um, very ably demonstrate, the, the 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 females in your story are actually just as important as the men and probably again have been overlooked in the past yeah i think you know that that period just after the conquest is so interesting when you've got you know that kind of immediate aftermath where you've got rebellions and uprisings against the normans and there's often a tendency to focus on those kind of rebel stories um i talk about a, a lot about um, hero with the wake for instance in my book it's a kind of quintessential anti-norman rebel but that was only kind of one response to the conquest and a rather short-lived one, really. It only lasted a couple of years before those rebellions kind of, you know, died away and failed effectively. So what happened after that is much more a story of how people, and yes, especially the the women, kind of had to go on living in the new Norman society, and whether through marriage um, or through other kinds of kind of connections, they, they sort of 
pass something on as well as kind of reinventing what they had for their descendants and their um, their new families. Right. Could we um, could we focus in a little bit on the on the Godwin family for for, for a minute, which I found really really interesting what you what you'd done there. Um, so. This family, Harold, King Harold, was of course the most famous member of the, of the family in 1066. He, he became king in that year. Um, we shouldn't forget that his sister Edith um, uh, was the uh, was the wife of the previous king, Edward the Confessor. So, um, two very important figures uh, right at the top of of society. But could you? very quickly sort of sketch out how that family had come to prominence um, through the course of the 11th century for us. They're a really interesting family because they come to prominence really quickly, so kind of within a generation really. And a lot of their sort of influence um, of the, that Harold and his brothers had in 1066, it kind of dates back to the, the first conquest that England experienced in the 11th century, which was um, by Canute, um, so the Danish conquest of 1016. And Godwin was an Englishman who kind of allied himself with Canute and did very well out of it and was married um, to or married a Danish noblewoman who was a family connection of Canute called Geetha. So you've got this kind of Anglo-Danish family Godwin becomes Earl of Wessex, a very important earldom, um, and is important right through the reign of Canute. And then, of course, once um, the Anglo-Saxon king, Edward the Confessor, returns to England in the 1040s, Godwin kind of manages to to manoeuvre an influential relationship with him as well. Not always a very easy one because they didn't get on particularly well. Um, But so, and then, yeah, um, Edward marries Godwin's daughter and Godwin's sons also take on positions of of power and effectively kind of dominate English politics um, in the decades before the conquest. So you've got this kind of interesting family who are sort of nouveau riche in a sense, um, and they've got these quite strong links to Denmark through on the mother's side, but they're living in England and they have um, a lot of power in England. And at the time of the conquest, they're not quite royal, but they're very, very close to it. And that's, of course, how Harold is able to kind of claim the throne. And the and the sort of the, the Scandinavian perspective comes through um, in your analysis of what happens to the family after 1066. Now, Famously, Harold dies um, uh, at the Battle of Hastings, so we know what happens to him. But what, and, and as does some of his brothers, um, Lithwin and, and Gerth. But what, what um, give, give us a little sense about what happens to the, the remaining members of that family after 1066. I mean, as you say, you know, three of them died at the Battle of Hastings and Tosti, one of the other brothers, had died at the Battle of Stamford Bridge a couple of weeks earlier. So within a few weeks, you know, almost the entire um, adult male sort of generation of the family were kind of wiped out. Um, And Godwin had died some years earlier. So who was left was really Geetha, the the grandmother, the matriarch, um, and then a number of children who were probably just in their teens um, or or younger. So Harold had left surviving children and so had Tosti and so had um, Svein, the older brother, who died some time before. And what happened was that Geetha, first of all, she went to um, Exeter. So the Southwest was a kind of a bit of a power base for her. And there was a kind of short-lived attempt at rebellion um, in Exeter, where Harold's sons, with some support from Ireland, were trying to kind of raid in the Southwest and, um, and, and sort of fight off the Normans there. But when that failed, Geetha headed off uh, first to Flanders and then eventually to Denmark, um, and probably her grandchildren kind of all ended up in Denmark as well. And we then don't know what happened to Harold's children, but we know that 
his daughter was kind of given, uh, I suppose, by her um, um, by her relative, um, King Svein, was kind of put into a, a diplomatic marriage um, and ended up in Russia. And so she had a, a quite successful career as the, the consort of the, the Grand Prince of Kiev, which is a quite good ending for her. But the brothers, we don't know what happened to them. But they seem to have kind of given up on England um, at a fairly early stage and sort of seen, decided that their future lay in Scandinavia. And the descendants of, of, of that daughter, that they went on to have lots of um, positions around Europe. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Married into all kinds of other royal families. <laughs> so so the so sort of the Godwin family line, you kind of think, oh, it stops in 1066 with Harry. But actually, it doesn't. There's a, there's, a, there's a long sort of afterlife going on across Europe. Yes, through Geetha, just through that daughter. I, I was I was very struck by by the the what you what you investigate what you found out about their the Godwins uh, overseas. Were they, were they were the, was the family scene sort of was was that tainted legacy that we talked about earlier that, that I guess they they have in England because of of what what happened to Harold? Did that uh, legacy not was it not so tainted across Europe? Were they seen as uh, a perfectly um, acceptable sort of uh, of family? Yes, I think you know all of the kind of um, the, the tainted legacy that that you know that they have in England is mostly the result of sort of Norman propaganda against Harold, really, um, and that attempt to blacken his reputation. Um, but in Scandinavia, they didn't really care very much about that. They cared much more about the fact that, well, first of all, that he had been a king, so he was of royal status, and that also that on his mother's side, he was related to the Danish royal family, to the dynasty of Canute, who continued to rule Denmark for a long time. So he was, uh, in in Scandinavia, it was kind of that side of the family that was almost more important than Harold's own side of the family. So they didn't kind of worry too much about that, the question of whether, you know, had he been a legitimate king, was he a perjurer, all the kind of stuff that you get in kind of Norman attacks on Harold and, and discussions of his legacy in England that wasn't it just wasn't so important uh, in the rest of Europe it, it wasn't a, wasn't a conversation that was happening beyond really. the English so that's really interesting <laughs> is it because it kind of you know we, we focus really heavily on that and and, uh, and and worry about it but um but not so much elsewhere what a, okay so uh, what about Edgar Affling who you mentioned earlier um a fascinating figure I've um I've written a bit about him uh, in the context of the bio tapestry for the magazine, and we've talked about him on the podcast so um, before. But so he's he's this he's this guy who was kind of the closest blood rel- um, um, relative to Edward the Confessor. Um, returns to England uh, um, in the 1050s, probably from um, exile in in Europe. And then there's this, this as you as you alluded to earlier, this idea that perhaps he is the the, the man who could have been the, the best candidate, really, in terms of blood lineage in 1066, rather than Harold or William. I, I, I wonder how did William and the Normans see him, in your view? Do you think, and, and how did the rest of Europe see this man? That's a really that's a really interesting question. How did the Normans see him? Because you know, so uh, he kind of was involved in rebellion, you know, again, for a short period after the conquest, but then actually fairly quickly seems to have sort of given up, or again, you know, given up on that idea or seen that it was um, not realistic to try and kind of make any military resistance to the Normans. So he kind of tried to adapt himself, it seems, to Norman society. He kind of became part of the Norman world. Um, he became very good friends with um, Robert Curtos, one of William's sons. So he was kind of, you know, allowing himself with, with the Normans. Um, and he, of course, course, because his sister was married to the King of Scotland, he had sort of useful allies in Scotland too. And he sort of 
acted then like a, any other Anglo-Norman nobleman. He, you know, he, he fought in Norman battles and battles in Italy and he went to the Holy Land and crusade and, you know, he kind of was, he doesn't sort of stand out as a, a an Anglo-Saxon kind of a holdover from the Anglo-Saxon world. And yet there is a kind of discomfort in Anglo-Norman sources about how he's treated. Um, there's a sort of, uh, almost like an unwillingness to write about him or to certainly to, to praise him. Some Norman writers are very critical of him, kind of in a way that doesn't totally make sense when you <laughs> what did he do to deserve criticism um it seems to be more that they they just were a little bit uncomfortable with his status and and the fact that he just lived such a long time after the conquest with this sort of unsettled kind of position it, you know he didn't really fit in anywhere He's one of the uncomfortable stories that you reference in in your book. I what I don't understand about Edgar Effling is why didn't William just have him got rid of well, that yeah, absolutely, that's a good question. Um, and what's, I, what's your I, yeah. take on it? I don't. I actually, I do not know. I think. I mean, William didn't sort of execute political opponents as a as a kind of matter of course. It was unusual. So what happened to, to Waltheof, who I mentioned earlier, um, also a survivor of an important Anglo-Saxon family, he was executed, but that was specifically because he was involved in a, a particular rebellion that seems to have just basically tried William's patience too far. And so he was executed. But even at the time, that was seen as an extreme and an unusual thing to do. So it would have been un- un- uncharacteristic of William to sort of just have Edgar Atheling executed or to drum up some, some reason to kill him. I don't think that was something he would have thought of doing, unlike, say, Canute, who would totally have just had him executed <laughs> without a second thought. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Even in the 12th and 13th century, you're still kind of seeing a sense of English resentment and injustice, um, a sense that the Normans have kind of unfairly conquered England and they're oppressing the English and they're kind of limiting um, English opportunities and so on. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com history extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I mean, I suppose it's part of the uh, the bigger story that is uh, sort of underpinning all, 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 of, all of your book, uh, the accommodation that was being sought between conqueror and conquered people and, and, and trying to find ways to come to terms with that and clearly... Um, bumping off uh, a key figure in sort of the the, the previous Anglo-Saxon royal house would not have helped in in reaching an accommodation. Yes, I think that's right. I think it, it would have been a very unpopular move to to just have Edgar Atheling um, kind of got rid of and, um, and and might have caused some kind of you know you can imagine it would have caused um, uh, disquiet or, or trouble um, among the English. And I think the Normans. I mean, obviously, in one sense, they imposed their power very strongly on England, but they also did. A sort of um, attempt to present themselves as kind of you know legitimate and just inheritors of much of English history as well. They they were conquerors, but they they sort of took on their own version of English history and made it theirs. And that's what you see, especially as you get into the 12th century with um, like Anglo-Norman historians writing versions of the history of England, which kind of present the Normans as, as heirs to English history and not as complete newcomers, not as just kind of violent conquerors, but as people who have kind of come into this land and are now part of it and part of its history. And that's often kind of where these, these stories of these these kind of survivor generation, um, where they come in really as people who've who kind of bridge those two worlds. That suggests that, that we don't have this clean break idea that uh, that, that you kind of assume might happen um, after such a cataclysmic sort of conquest experience. There is continuation going going through. Um, now, now look. So there's there's lots of uncomfortable stories that you talk about that kind of people wanted to avoid talking about in the aftermath of the conquest because um, they they brought up um, difficult topics. Um, maybe, you, maybe you want to mention a few more of those uh, in the answer to this question, but there are also stories that could kind of be harnessed to reframe or, or, or rephrase the, the debate in a different way and to allow for this continuation. So what's, how, how are people trying to understand how they should talk about what's happened in 1066 in the, uh, in the years afterwards? Well, one interesting thing about it is kind of how long it takes before you can get much of a, especially of an English perspective on the events of the conquest. So one of the effects of the conquest was to to almost kind of put a stop to a lot of writing in English um, for decades after the conquest. You know, English literature changes very substantially after the conquest. And part of that is a, a kind of um, almost like it's impossible to write about this event in the English language. And by the 12th century, you've, you've certainly got lots of Norman writers writing about it. And by the 12th century, you do start to see more of an English perspective. You start to see, um, so for instance, the stories about Hereward, um, this this kind of Lincolnshire rebel against the, the Normans, where it's very much, it is a, you know, a story about hostility between the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans, and Hereward is this hero who's kind of always um, tricking the Normans and outsmarting them and showing how much brighter the English are and, and how brave they are and all that kind of thing. But there's really a sense that what's going to happen as the kind of res- resolution to that story is not that the Normans are, are going to go away or are going to be defeated, 
printed. You know, that's not even a possible kind of imagine something you can't even imagine by the 12th century. But that they will come to respect the English. So the Hereward story, for instance, ends with him kind of making peace with William and William sort of recognizing what a great man he is and giving him lands and letting him live peacefully for the rest of his life. And that seems to be how people were trying to tell the story of the conquest, that it was about sort of mutual respect and accommodation and not just you know, Norman culture being kind of imposed on top of the English, but something more nuanced than that. And is that where um, the historian Edmar, I always pronounce it Edmar, but I'm obviously wrong. Yeah. You know better. <laughs> so Edmar, um, tell us a bit about him. How does he fit into that story? Yeah, so he's interesting because he's someone, as I said, not from a you know a distinguished family or anything, just a fairly ordinary boy, basically, at the time of the conquest. He was about six or seven at the time of the conquest. He was being brought up in the monastery at Christchurch, Canterbury, so Canter- Canterbury Cathedral. And he you know, basically kind of grew up then in the aftermath of the conquest. Um, Canterbury experienced um, a lot of upheaval because the Canterbury Cathedral burned down in 1067. So the you know this great church, the, the sort of the centre of English Christianity burned down at the same time, pretty much as this terrible kind of political um, upheaval was taking place. And those two things together would have been, I think, very traumatic to experience. And Edmer sort of witnessed that as a child. And as he grew up, he came to um, to be a writer of um, of history and also of saints' lives. Um, and in uh, he wrote a lot of, of different works about, you know, different aspects of Anglo-Saxon history. He's best known for writing quite a lot about the life of St Anselm, who was a, um, one of the post-conquest archbishops of Canterbury, and Edmer was very close to him. Um, and so in the process of writing about Anselm, he writes a lot about kind of um, post-conquest, you know, Anglo-Norman politics and uh, Anselm was in dis- had lots of disputes with the Norman kings and all that kind of thing. Um, but Edmer was, was sort of writing about contemporary events, but also sort of looking back to pre-conquest history, to what he could just about remember of the pre-conquest world um, and what he thought was important about it that should be remembered. So stories of, for instance, the great sort of saints of Anglo-Saxon Canterbury, like St Dunstan, one of the previous archbishops of Canterbury, he really wanted those stories to be remembered and to be valued by the Normans um, and not just to be kind of forgotten as, oh, well, that was all just the Anglo-Saxon period and we can just forget about that now because it's all something new. Yeah, so there was a a deliberate effort to try and look back and find points of, of virtue or things that should be recognised. And and quite a, a year that comes up quite a lot in your story is the year 975, during the reign of uh, a previous king, King Edgar. What's 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 the significance of that year? Yeah, 975, I think this is really interesting because Edgar is one of those Anglo-Saxon kings who we don't kind of think about very much. You know, we don't, even people who are interested in Anglo-Saxon history, you know, you might know about Anglo-Saxon kings like Alfred the Great or Athelstan or whoever, but Edgar doesn't get so much of a Looking, but from a 11th century point of view, Edgar was was very important, uh, a 10th century king, and in some ways. He, the end of his reign was seen as it was kind of like the beginning of the end for Anglo-Saxon England. So when he died, there was a succession crisis. There was uh, kind of a lot of, of kind of trouble and, and upheaval in England, including um, the sight of a comet kind of marking the sign that things were going to go very badly wrong. And of course, that also happened in 1066, as we see on the Bayer Tapestry. There's a comet kind of heralding disaster. So for 11th and 12th century historians, they often kind of looked back to Edgar's reign as, as kind of like the last golden age before things went badly wrong before the English monarchy kind of descended into dynastic chaos as has really happened um, through through the course of the 11th century. Um, and in some sense, they kind of see the, the seeds of the Norman conquest being sown way back in the 10th century. 
Okay, so so these um, these people trying to create this narrative that um, uh, allows for a continuity of, of ideas and concepts and and uh, and good things to be sought from before Norman conquest did, and and I guess that's coming mostly from the English side rather than the Norman side. Did the Normans buy into this? Did were they were they sort of happy to accept that there were good things that they ought to celebrate? Yeah, that's the interesting thing, especially in the 12th century, you do start to get Norman historians effectively kind of adopting English history or their version of English history as being, well, this is ours now, this is part of our story as well. So you get historians like William of Malmesbury um, and Henry of Huntingdon, these kind of, uh, these authors writing from an Anglo-Norman perspective as if they're sort of part, and they are, they're part English and they're part Norman, they're a kind of part of a mixed generation now. So they don't identify solely with the Normans and reject the English or vice versa. There's this sense that England is now an Anglo-Norman society and therefore all of its history going way back to the start of the Anglo-Saxon period and beyond you know back to the Romans and so on is all also part of of the Normans version of history too so they can they can they can take it on and they can say they can celebrate and lord it just as much as uh, anyone who's been been living in England for generations would would feel comfortable with it and and is that why sort of certain elements of Englishness and uh, if that's a not an anachronistic thing to say uh, concepts that are associated with England at the time managed to carry on for it? Yes, absolutely, including of course the, the word English itself. So it's it's not an anachronistic concept to apply to the 11th and 12th century because in this period English is a really important term that's kind of being um, kind of expanded really. So you know, the Normans start to think of themselves as English. So they don't speak English, they mostly go on speaking French, but they're in England and so they are les Anglais, they are the English somehow. And so the kings of the English are Norman kings um, and, you know, English Englishness is, is kind of becoming part of their identity too, even while they retain obviously important links to Normandy. Okay, just a, a couple more questions before we finish up. One of the things that I, I was really struck by from reading the book was like looking back before 1066 through the 11th century and and earlier um, at the sort of the roots of, of what led to 1066 and these different families and how they uh, sort of were entwined. If I asked you to pick one year um, in which the sort of the roots of the Norman conquest were born, what year would you plump for? Oh, that's an interesting question. I I wouldn't say nine seven five like the Anglo the Anglo Saxon historians would. I think probably ten sixteen, um, which was the year that Canute conquered England, and I think that was such a sort of destabilizing event, especially for the English monarchy. Um, you know, driving the sons of Ethelred into exile forcing essentially Edward the Confessor to kind of identify very strongly with the Norman side of his family. His mother's side of the family was Norman. And uh, because he had to go to Normandy, because Canute and the Danes were ruling England, he kind of, that's when he kind of really made his his strong Norman links. And also, of course, that's helped to facilitate the rise of the Godwin family and, and their important role in 11th century politics. And it just kind of destabilised and unsettled the, the the line of English inheritance in a way that kind of worked its consequences out right through the 1030s, 1040s. You have a number of succession crises um, in the middle of the 11th century. And then, of course, the, the most famous is 1066. So that would be my choice, 1016. That sounds like a pretty good choice to me. Um, so, OK, so... Basically, the book is all about uh, the sort of how people came to terms with what had clearly been a very uh, a very traumatic experience in 1066, with a, a complete overhaul of the of the of the top levels of society. I suppose, 
what 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 observations do you have in terms of what that society looked like um, in the years after the Battle of Hastings? What was it a completely fractured situation, or were people very quickly coming together and trying to work out how they could live and 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 prosper in the new world? I think the answer to that question depends on sort of whose perspective you're looking at, really, because I think from the Norman perspective, things settled down relatively quickly. You know, so rebellion against the the Normans lasted, you know, kind of had various outbreaks of rebellions for about 10 years only after the Battle of Hastings. But by about 1075, 1076, it was kind of settled. So they were like, oh, that's fine now. (laughs) And they were beginning that process of sort of you know, starting to kind of root themselves in English society and to to marry into English families and to kind of, you know, start to think of themselves, you know, what comes to be the case that they think of themselves as English, that starts quite soon after the conquest. From an English point of view, and of course, it's much harder to get a sense of the English point of view from the sources because they start to go silent at this point. I think it would have taken much longer. I think even in the 12th and 13th century, you're still kind of seeing a sense of English resentment and injustice, um, a sense that the Normans have kind of unfairly conquered England and they're oppressing the English and they're kind of limiting um, English opportunities and so on. And that's where something like the Heroid story kind of is coming out of that sense of injustice, I think. So, yeah, it really would depend who you ask, I think. <laughs> OK. And finally, was there, a, um, was there a particular reason why you wrote this book now? Are we, do we need, is there, are there any particular learnings that are, uh, are pertinent to us today? Does it have any relevance to, uh, to, to current situations? So I've been writing this book for a few years, obviously, because it takes a while to write a book. And when I started writing it, it was kind of in the aftermath of Brexit. And I think questions of what the relationship is between England and Britain and, and Europe all seemed very important. Um, and of course, they are, they are. I think that is still something that's that's worth thinking about. You know, what does it mean to be English? Um, can that be an expansive term of identity that that uh, can be kind of a, a adapted and expanded to include anyone who lives in England, as it was um, for the Normans? And then the past couple of years, as I've been writing it, um, I've been thinking more about this question of a kind of a how lives can be kind of thrown off course by unexpected events and that's often the case with these these children in this story that they kind of they're born into privilege or to to kind of one way of life and they expect to live their lives one way and then as we've seen with the pandemic things can just happen that are completely beyond your control and you have to to adapt to new circumstances so that's something that's been really in my mind the, the past couple of years as I've been thinking about these young people and how they kind of managed to to make new lives for themselves and and to kind of to adapt to, to changing conditions. That was Eleanor Parker. Conquered, The Lost Children of Anglo-Saxon England is out now published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.